Okay. Good evening, everybody. It's nice to see all of you. If you there's a new set of notes for this evening by, by Jonathan Edwards. So if you didn't grab one, grab it. There's a three-hole punch there as well to put it in your cool binder if you have one. And if you and and uh, if you have a Bible, please turn to Matthew 16. Okay, so if you have a Bible, turn to Matthew 16. It's been so long since we've been together. Uh, I hope you enjoyed last week off. I want to remind us what we're doing in uh, these weeks that we're spending together. The reason why this class is called Credo, Saints, Sinners, and the Battle for Salvation in the Early Church. One of the things that I've mentioned to you is that fake Jesuses and false gospels cannot save. And so being clear and thinking well about what the Bible says is critical to our eternal salvation. We don't want to be fooled or deceived into believing in a false Jesus, but we want to understand Jesus for how the Bible presents him to us and believe what the Bible says. But what we've been seeing is that heretics will use the Bible to tell lies, and heretics will use the Bible to make mistakes, intended or unintended. And so sometimes we have to use non-Bible words to talk about what the Bible means. And that's one of the things that the creeds give to us. Now, creeds are not on par with Scripture. They are subordinate to Scripture, but they help explain what Scripture is teaching. So in Matthew 16, I see here the basis for our grandparents in the faith fighting for clarity on who Jesus is. So in Matthew 16, in verse 13, now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But Jesus said to them, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. Let's pray before we keep going. Lord, we, we want to agree with Peter and make that great confession that you, Jesus, are the Christ. You are the one promised from the beginning who would be the last Adam, God in the flesh, who would come down to rescue and save sinners. Well, Lord, what you've done is beyond amazing. And who you are is also beyond amazing. And we know that part of the joy of eternity 
on the new heaven and new earth and our new glorified bodies living in this world, part of our central to our joy in the new creation is going to be understanding who you are in yourself as a triune God, who Jesus is as God the Son incarnate, and what you have done in your gospel. So Lord, we, we pray that you would give us a, a foretaste of eternity tonight by helping us understand what it means that Jesus became incarnate. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're looking at this Matthew 16 just to remind us that there was all manner of opinions about who Jesus was when Jesus was cruising around on the shore of Galilee. Maybe he's this guy. Maybe he's that guy. Uh, we know that uh, at the time of Christ, the Jews were confused as they read the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, the 12. They didn't understand what it meant that a son would be born to us who'd be called mighty God. They didn't understand what it meant when the virgin will conceive and give birth and you shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. They, they thought, are there going to be two saviors? Are there two Christs? They were confused. And so Jesus asks Peter, who do you say? And when he says you're the Christ, he's summarizing. That's a summary word for all the Old Testament explains about who Jesus is. Well, what we've seen in these weeks leading up to this evening, as we've gone looked at the Apostles' Creed, we looked at the Muratorian Canon, we've looked at the Nicene Creed 1.0 and 2.0, we've looked at how different heretics have arisen to create false Jesuses. And so uh, what we're going to see now is that the church is going to change its attention to if God is triune, okay, we get that, kind of. But what does it mean that God became man? And so we'll, we'll move into that. But first we get into that. I want to ask if there's any questions that have come up in any conversations that you've had or as, as you've diligently studied the notes I've given you every single day since I've last seen you, if any questions have arisen. Any questions? Yes. Closer here. Yeah, okay. That's great. Uh, going back to the Trinity, for Jews who do not believe that Jesus was the Messiah, do they believe that the Messiah is a is is God? They don't. They disagree. They don't know. So so depending upon what, so in the same way that there's a bunch of different types of Baptists and a bunch of different types of Presbyterians, there's a bunch of different types of uh, Jews from liberal to conservative, and ask each one, and they're all going to give some different answer to a metaphor, to it's the actual, the people of Israel themselves, uh, but none of them, as far as I know, believe in a divine Savior. It's a very good question. Really good question. Any, any other questions as we move on from the Trinity? It's not your last chance to ask them. All right. We're actually going to stay, take a step back in time on the first page of your notes, back to 325. Now, we ended our time in 381 at the second edition of the Nicene Creed. We're going back to the first edition, but I want to tell you a Christmas story. And it's a beautiful story. I have titled at the top of your notes, it's a sweet vignette, Santa Claus 
punched Arius in the face. I think that's a really good way to start a Bible study personally. So um, this also, this is, this is taken from, uh, adapted from a, a little booklet called The True Story of St. Nicholas from Mira, Turkey by Julie McDonald. I'm going to suggest that when she publishes this again, she takes this title. But anyways, we, we saw that with these councils that were called, you had heated competing theological camps, right? Monks with clubs in the streets fighting each other. That's how serious it was. So here's a story about one, uh, he wasn't a monk, but this is a guy named Nicholas. He was a bishop of a town called Mira, Turkey. And it was said, as the legend goes, that, that this man, this bishop, Nicholas, he, that he enjoyed secretly giving gifts to those in need. Legend has it that a, a father of three beautiful daughters fell in hard times financially. Through a turn of events, Nicholas heard of their need, and he secretly threw a bag of gold through a window into the home during the night, thereby rescuing the eldest daughter from being sold into slavery and to provide food and clothing for the family. Nicholas secretly did this over the years two more times for the family, for the other two daughters, even providing a dowry for a daughter to be married. On Nicholas's third secret gift that evening, the father ran out, chased him down, caught Nicholas, weeping with thanksgiving, fell at Nicholas's feet. And Nicholas replied, don't thank me, thank God. He is the one who has provided for you. Now promise me you'll never tell anyone as long as I am alive. The father kept the promise, but the story was passed down by the three daughters. And legend has it that Nicholas loved giving secret gifts to people in need, and that was just something that he did with his ministry, with his life. Well, you may recall that um, we heard about the Diocletian persecution. This is right before Constantine came to power. Nicholas suffered greatly during the Diocletian persecution, around 303, so when the persecution broke out. And for eight years, he was confined to a dark, damp, cold cell deep in the ground where he never saw the light of day. Evidently, he was freed with the Edict of Milan uh, in 313, but he was barely alive. And this is where it steps into some of the anecdotes we've heard before. Nicholas was one of those bishops who was invited to attend the First Council of Nicaea, and 325. Now remember, that was called because of Arius, that great arch-heretic who taught that Jesus was a created being. So when Arius arose to present his case, as the story goes, Nicholas was so outraged and incensed that Arius was denying the deity of Christ, he got out of his seat, walked up to Arius, and slapped him in the face. I mean, that's like an interesting church service <laughs> when that happens. Because he did that, remember Constantine was sitting there in his gold robes. Nicholas was banned from the rest of the council, which is when you look at the records of who was in attendance. Sometimes his name is mentioned, sometimes it's not. And it was probably because he got banned. He died in 343 at the age of 73 or 83. 
he was able to continue his ministry. But the reason we're talking about this is because Nicholas was later declared a saint. That is, Saint Nicholas. And as legends developed and spread in tandem with monks and missionaries going throughout the West, Saint Nicholas came to be known by other names, such as Father Christmas, Kris Kringle, and Santa Claus. And some of the traditions around uh, the story of him include throwing money, that he threw money down chimneys. So some of the legends about Santa Claus coming down chimneys is because it's believed, legend, Nicholas threw money down chimneys in addition to windows. The red suit was symbolic of the red uh, bishop robes that Nicholas would have worn. Stockings were reminiscent of the gifts of gold thrown through the window. And then oranges were placed at the base of stockings because they were like gold medallions for the kids. And it was a rare, a rare treat. So, so the point is, a key takeaway is to teach your children and your grandchildren that Santa Claus punched Arius in the face. Merry Christmas. <laughs> Maybe that should be this year's Thanksgiving or a Christmas Eve service message. There might be some angry parents, though. Now let's fast forward. We are thinking about the developments between 381 and 451. So while the Nicene Creed settled Trinitarian Orthodoxy, it unsettled a new series of heretics. If Nicaea clarified the Trinitarian relationship between Jesus and God the Father... That brought out new questions and therefore new heresies arose about the relationship of Jesus' own deity and humanity. If Jesus is the eternal second person of the Trinity, what does it mean that he became incarnate through the Virgin Mary? It's a, a really important question, something that we've already brought up a few times in our time together. So questions now begin to focus on what it meant that Jesus is God and man. So if orthodoxy confesses, and now I'm quoting from the Nicene Creed, if we say, I believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, if we confess that, but then we also confess who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man, how do those fit together? What does that mean? What does it mean when we confess that Jesus is God and the Son incarnate? What does it mean that God became man? In the, in, in the incarnation, did God change? That's what they were asking. If God became man, did God change? Can God change? What does that mean? In the incarnation, did God put on a human shell on the outside, but he had a divine interior? Uh, in the incarnation, did God fuse his divinity and humanity into some type of new third thing, some new creature? 
in the incarnation did God become two persons, kind of like a schizophrenic with multiple personality disorder, Gollum and Smeagol? Was there like a switch, depending upon the situation, that would turn on the man part of him and then sometimes the God part of him got turned on? What does it mean Jesus is the God-man? Um, did God the Son fly down like a ghost and possess the man Jesus? So there's two, two sons or two persons when you looked at Jesus uh, and, and then how, how human was Jesus, and how divine was he? Is it, was it an even 50-50 split? Half God, half man? God is more important than man, so was it a 70-30 split? What does it mean that God the Son became incarnate? Uh, did his divinity overwhelm his humanity such that Jesus wasn't really a human like you and I, and therefore not an example that we could follow? Those are really important questions. And those are the questions that people begin to think through and then come up with a lot of bad answers. And some good answers. And as, we've, as we're going to see, and as we've already seen, they were using complex words, and talking past each other, and therefore hitting each other in the face. So we'll, we'll hear more, more good and godly things that they did like that. Do questions of Christ's deity and humanity in the incarnation even matter to the gospel? I mean, that's a good question. Well, you can see the answer I have there. Yes, yes, it does. So on the one hand, for example, we could go to Malachi 3.6. I, the Lord, do not change. So, question and answer. Uh, does the Lord change? No. You're right. Very good interpreters of the Bible. The Lord does not change. This means... If Malachi 3.6 is true, for example, this means God could not have changed when the Son became man. So if it's taught that God did change in some way, we contradict the Bible and we invent a new God. That is not the God of the Bible, right? Because our understanding of God is not derived from philosophy, our understanding of God is not derived from math. Our understanding of who God is is derived from his revelation of himself in his inspired word, which is sufficient to tell us all that we need to know of who God is. Okay, so God doesn't change. But on the other hand, the only way for people to be saved was for Jesus, and here I'm quoting Hebrews 2.17, to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service to God, to make propitiation, big Bible word, for the sins of the people, yet he was without sin. So God doesn't change, Malachi 3.6, but Hebrews 2.17, Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect, exactly like us, yet without sin. 
And the word propitiation means that his sacrifice satisfied God's just demands. So yes, it matters. God doesn't change. God became man. Did God change? Did he not? What happened? And additionally, we can't forget during this time, false gospels and heresies were still swirling about. There were people, who, there were churches that still taught Jesus was a less divine being than the Father. That's heresy. There was churches that taught that Jesus was a phantom. He, was, he, he looked like a man, but he was just really a ghost. Well, and not really flesh. That was also a heresy. Jesus was a created being. Arianism, that's a heresy. Jesus was just a really, really holy man who God adopted. Hey, I like you down there. I'm going to make you my son. That's the heresy of adoptionism. So what we believe matters because the identity of Jesus matters. Again, because fake Jesuses and false gospels cannot save. So this is thinking about what the Bible says. God can't change. Jesus had to be made like us in every respect. So what happened in Mary's womb? If Christ's divinity overshadows and overwhelms his humanity, then we cannot in any meaningful way agree with the Bible passage we just read that he became a man like us in every respect. And we'll talk about that a little bit more. If, if, he's, if Jesus is less human, not human, part human, or becomes a demigod superman, he's not like you and me in every respect. So he had to be a man, okay? But if Christ's incarnation created two different people, one divine person and one human person, then we cannot in any meaningful way speak of the unity of Christ's work. We'll come back to that. And Christ's, if Christ's incarnation diminished his deity in any way, Jesus would not be worthy of worship. Can he de-God himself? Can he dilute his godness? Can, we, can he go down to level 70 God? No, no, and no. So in the incarnation, he can't change his godness. If Christ were just a man, he could not save humanity. So this is still not answering the question, but it's, it's trying to show these are really important questions that we need to think about. Because heresies arise that change these truths of Jesus uh, and turn him into something that he's, he's not. So before we, we move on, any, any questions Questions, clarifications, or anything? Yes. How do you feel about the phrase that Mary is the mother of God? Because it oh. makes me feel a little odd because then that implies that God is a created being. And I know what they mean, like mother of Jesus, but what's, what's your take? We will talk about that, Lord willing, next week. How's that for a satisfying answer? Yeah. Yeah, look at that. You have to come back. Rope you in to talk about Theotokos. Yes. Any other awesome questions I won't answer? All right, so let's start getting into the historical setting that these questions were, 
were uh, coming up. Diane, do you have a question? Okay. Does your neighbor? <laughs> so we're working towards this thing called the Chalcedonian definition. Sometimes it's called the Chalcedonian Creed. Sometimes it's called the Chalcedonian Statement of 451. But we've seen, and we're thinking in the East, think Turkey, think uh, Antioch and Syria, just north of Jerusalem. Not just north, but north, just north on the map. And then down to northern Africa, Egypt, and then Alexandria, Egypt. So if you think of the Mediterranean Sea, from your perspective, it's that kind of crescent shape on the east side. That's where we are. There were two main schools of thought. So as, as Christianity spread, it's no longer illegal. And as uh, now the state is actually financing the church, you had power centers Political centers arise. So way, way, way far away in the West, you had Rome and the Pope sitting in Rome, kind of doing his own thing super far away. But then you had Alexandria, Egypt, and you had Jerusalem, and then you had Constantinople, modern-day Istanbul, Turkey. And those were major centers where patriarchs, and the, where they were the um, head bishop. They were like other popes. Well, they all wanted to be first place. They all wanted their theology to win. They all wanted their culture to win. And so Constantinople, Turkey, and Egypt, Alexandria, fought all the time. Argued against each other. Part of it was cultural. A lot of it was political. We've already seen uh, in with Nicaea that at different governors, uh, different uh, church levels of authority, and even emperors would, would be swayed by one theological persuasion or another. And if your emperor was um, a heretic, then he supported the heretics and deposed all the good guys. We saw that happen with Athanasius. So, so you have a brewing conflict still going on between Constantinople and Alexandria, Egypt, Egypt and Turkey. So two leading schools of thought emerged that were often in direct opposition and conflict with one another, theologically, politically, and culturally. In addition to rivalry for power and influence, similar to the period leading up to the Nicene Creed, both groups used the same words to describe opposite things about Jesus. So they were talking past each other. And that led to further mistrust and misunderstanding. Now, I think that some of these guys were saved, and some of them were godly, and some of them were saved and pretty ungodly, and some of them were unsaved and absolutely ungodly, but they're all still part of the church. So sometimes it's hard to tell uh, when you read about the things that they chose to do. Now, it's easy for us, from our vantage point, to look back and say, maybe Nicholas shouldn't have punched Arius in the face. Maybe he should have. We could t talk about that debate. Monks shouldn't have fights in the streets and beat each other up and imprison each other. Um, but that was going on. So let's talk about these two 
groups, the north and the south, north meaning Turkey, Istanbul, Constantinople, and Alexandria, Egypt. So the ones in the north, they emphasized, when they talked about Jesus, and they're debating what does it mean that Jesus is the God-man, or what does it mean that Jesus is God and man, these emphasized, when you read what they wrote, they emphasized Jesus' humanity and the distinction of his natures. So yes, Jesus is human and divine, but when you listen to the sermons and read what they wrote, they emphasize his manness to such a degree, it kind of minimized his deity a little bit. And if you just think, just for a moment, if we're honest about ourselves, um, when we think about Jesus, you probably have a bent to thinking of him kind of more man than he is God or more God than he is man. And that just kind of happens. Sometimes we're accidental heretics. Um, sometimes, well, well, we'll get it. We'll get into that. So that's what they did. Their teachers, their pastors, their bishops, they really wanted to guard Jesus has two natures, divine nature and human nature. So this is the northern school of Antioch, Syria. Because Antioch is just above Jerusalem, and usually leaders from their school would end up being the patriarch up in Constantinople. So they're called the Antiochenes. And the patriarch of Constantinople, modern-day Turkey, as I've said, often came from this region. So this region stressed the literal interpretation of Scripture. They also had different interpretations. Down in the south, in Alexandria, Egypt... They all believed the Bible, but it, down in Egypt, they had a little bit more of an allegorical, spiritual interpretation. They wanted to get to a spiritual truth hidden in the text. So back up to Constantinople, the leading figure was a guy named Nestorius. There's a group of them, but Nestorius is someone that we need to meet. So he lives from 381 to 451, and he was the patriarch of Constantinople. Uh, This guy was eventually branded a heretic, although it appears he might have been wrongly charged uh, when he seized, when he used, oh, they seized on his imprecise words. Sorry for the bad editing there. So it's debated whether Nestorius was Nestorian, and we'll get to his his weird theology, but you can see where it's going. His, His heresy is overemphasizing the two natures of Jesus as he's thinking through what does it mean that God, that Jesus is the God-man. But just to give you a little, another sweet vignette of what Nestorius is like, he once down, once burned down an Arian chapel. Remember the Arians are the bad guys? Uh, but he burned down their chapel, which ended up burning a great deal of Constantinople, so they called him Torchy. I, I don't know what that is in Greek, but that's what the people called him, right? They had, they had, they had their Trump nickname for him. Uh, on another occasion, when he could not answer the questions of some monks during his sermons, one of his sermons, 
He invited them over the next day to talk further, and when the monks arrived, they were beaten up by Nestorius's guards. Any questions? So, um, did he have the Holy Spirit? I don't know. I mean, that's this just a... I, I wouldn't... You shouldn't want your elders to do things like this. I'll just say that. So they're up in the north in Constantinople. He, uh, they emphasize, not just Nestorius, but they all emphasize that Jesus was a real human being with a complete human nature like us. Jesus had a human body, and Jesus had a human soul, mind, spirit. Uh, it's the same Greek word. Uh, that is used to describe the inner part of the person. That, that's all true. We, we, that's, all, that's all really good stuff. Uh, he emphasized, or they emphasized, the distinction between Christ's human and divine natures often to a fault. They feared that if they did not keep the two natures apart... All the human limitations of Jesus would be applied to his divinity. What does that mean? This would mean God changed his being into a new creature. That is, if, if the divine and the human are blended together, that means that God would become limited in his knowledge rather than all-knowing. That God would be weak, God would experience pain, God would be ignorant, he would need to be taught. So for example, if, if you don't distinguish between Jesus being God and man, and they get fused together, Nestorius taught God would no longer be, for example, omnipotent and omniscient. So they really wanted to guard the reality that Jesus was truly divine and truly human. From a different vantage point, these guys in the north, they believed that if a sharp distinction between the divine and human nature was not maintained, Jesus' divine qualities might be applied to his humanity. So this is the opposite direction. We just talked about if you blend together Jesus being God and man, that changes his deity. And we heard from Malachi, I am the Lord, I do not change. So God cannot become less God. But there's another potential mistake that they're trying to guard against. Well, if they're blended together, that means that his humanity, he'd become the Superman. And he would not be like us. He'd, he'd become like a demigod or something along those lines. And Jesus wouldn't be truly like us. Why does that matter? What do we read in Hebrews 2.17? Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he'd be a merciful and faithful high priest. But if, if, if Jesus became not human but superhuman, then when he lived, he wasn't living in our place. He wasn't facing the same temptations that you face. He wasn't experiencing the fallen world like you experience it. He was not a merciful and faithful high priest if he is more human than you and I are. Any questions on that? The less divinity or the more humanity? Questions, clarifications?
the dangers of taking the distinctions of Christ's two natures to an extreme. So this is where the errors come in. They were well-meaning, but then oftentimes their well-meaningness went into heresy. So, for example, at times, at the extreme level, it made it sound like Jesus was not just schizophrenic, not just Gollum and Smeagol, but he was actually two persons. It made it sound like, like, the, like the, um, the Spirit of God the Son, like I said earlier, flew down, and here's, well, I guess, Jesus being formed in Mary's womb. And well, they actually would, well, we'll get into this. Um, they did not like the idea of calling Mary the mother of God. Because to them it sounded like God was being created if Mary is God's mother. And so part of their error would say, well, Jesus was not divine in the womb. But when he was born, then the Spirit of Christ flew down and possessed him. And he was kind of like two sons, two different people, somehow schizophrenically, multiple personality disorder, put into one person where he was, uh, the different switches get turned on whether he was human or divine. And so they had teachers teaching those things, that Jesus was not Emmanuel in the womb, God with us, it wasn't until he was born, and, that, and that's, that's a heresy that we're, we're going to see, that they're going to fight against. Um, this type of thinking, the extremes of the division, could lead to the false belief that there were actually two sons in Christ. One they would call the eternal logos, the divine son, and then they would speak of the human son of, of man, Jesus of Nazareth. So you have two different people. We're going to come back to that. But that's, they, they wanted to maintain no fusion, but in their good efforts, they would go heretical and go too far with the extremes. So any questions on what they were maintaining and the, and the extremes of them in the north? Okay, let's go down to Egypt. To the southern school of Alexandria, Egypt. So this group was the exact opposite. For them, they emphasized the divinity of Jesus. And they emphasized the unity of Jesus being God and man. So they're, they're, it's the exact opposite. In the north, it's difference. In humanness, in the South, it's divinity and unity. These are the guys I mentioned that often emphasized a deeper spiritual meaning. So, the Storius, right, Torchy, up in the North. Let's meet Cyril, the Patriarch of Alexandria. Listen to what this, now this is a, um, it's like an epitaph, a eulogy. I don't know how you would say eulogy in a bad way. But this is what a guy in the north wrote to another guy in the north when they heard Cyril died. And I quote, this is, this is from the normally gentle-hearted Theodoret of Cyrus. He wrote to the patriarch 
Domnus of Antioch. This is what they thought of Cyril. At last, at last the villain has gone. The Lord, knowing that this man's spite has been growing daily and harming the body of the church, has cut him off like a plague and taking away the reproach of Israel. The living are delighted by his departure. Perhaps the dead are sorry at his arrival. (laughs) Indeed, we ought to be alarmed. They... The dead might be so annoyed by his presence among them that they sent him back. Great care must be taken, therefore. It is your holiness's special duty to tell those in charge of the funeral to lay a very large, very heavy stone on Cyril's grave in case he tries to come back and show his unstable mind among us again. So, that's what some thought of Cyril. The thing is, this is kind of a bad rap. He, he did use, uh, he, was, he was an excellent theologian with what looks like a bad personality and needed quite a bit of sanctification. And, the, and, was, and Cyril was pretty ruthless with his theological opponents in the north. That's why this guy wrote, wrote this kind eulogy about Cyril. So this school in the south, in, in Alexandria, Egypt, they emphasized, again, divinity and unity. And then for them, often at the expense of his humanity. So up in the north, they were so focused on his humanity that they minimized his divinity. The exact opposite is happening in the south. They both have the same Bible. Uh, They both claim to love Jesus. And you can see brewing how they're going to be talking past each other pretty significantly. And we're going to see down here in the south, in Alexandria, Egypt, we're going to meet two heretics. A guy named Apollinarius and then another heretic named Eutyches. Any questions about the north and south? We're going to get into semantic arguments in Greek. Does that sound fun? I'm glad that you're excited. We're going to see, if you recall when we looked at the leading up to the Nicene Creed, and we were introduced to those wonderful words, hypostases and usia. And different groups use those same words to describe the Trinity with the exact opposite meanings and exact opposite emphasis and we learned that those guys the Gregories called for redefinition of words and they wrote the Nicene Creed something similar is going to happen talking about what it means that Jesus is God and man so you're going to learn two words so here's here's part of the argument between these guys the Greek word for mind or spirit is is noose And it can be translated either way, and it just depends upon whoever's talking, what they mean. 
And some of the early church fathers, not all, but just a small group, some made a distinction between the mind and the soul. These guys are Greeks. It's about the year 400. They're a lot closer to the philosopher Plato than we are. And they are steeped in Platonic thinking. And they think that to be human is your intellect. They think that's what makes us, they'll say, at least as Christians, they'll say the image of God is having an intellect. Now there's problems with that because God gifts different intellects to different people and there's different stages of intellectual growth uh, from the womb to late in life and that's it's not true that our intellect is what it means to be the image of God. But here, that's what they, they thought. And so they wanted to distinguish between your mind and your soul. For them, the soul was the physical life force that animated the bodies of animals and humans. They used the word suke. Right there at the top, or bottom of page 68. So the noose, the mind, however, was the higher faculty of intellect or understanding which humans possessed, but animals did not. So sometimes, so if you ever read these guys, and you can, you can get a hold of, um, there's, there's a series that have hundreds of books in them. They're little tiny pocketbooks that you can get of Athanasius. I've got one in my office, Athanasius on the Incarnation. And you can get it, and it's 50 pages, and you can just read a few of his sermons and what he taught. That's where some of the, the quotes that we're getting in this series are coming directly from, from them. And when you read them, you, you hear them talking about the rational soul, and you hear them talking about the animal soul, and you think, what are you talking about? And we're trying to understand what they're talking about. So the noose, the rational soul, is your intellect, and that's what makes you human. Whereas the suke is your spirit, and that's your animal soul. And they did not, there was no such thing as evolution, because there is no such thing as evolution. But that back then they didn't have that, so when they say animal soul, they're talking about creaturely, what we share with other creatures. These two terms become important in the debate around the incarnation. Because we're going to see some heretics arise who are going to say, there's no way Jesus could have had a human mind. They're going to say, there's no way. It's impossible for Jesus to have a human noose. Because that's the source of sin, they taught. The intellect. So if Jesus can't have an intellect that's human... He must only have a divine intellect. So that means that he was a human on the outside with a body, but God on the inside. Like a jelly-filled donut. So that, that's where it kind of gets into, it's, it's, it's complex, we're using, there's weird names and weird words, but it's actually important because think about the beginning. What does it mean that God became man? Did he change? Did the deity change? Did the humanity change? Is it 70-30 split? What's going on? That's what they're having to, to think through. So more on this later. Any questions on noose or suke? Or anything else?
So let's consider the dominant heresies leading up to Chalcedon. So we're going to meet our buddy Torchy again. Here's the Antiochian heretic Nestorius. And, and some have said, here's how you can think about his error. Jesus' divinity must be shielded. That's, that's his error. What does that mean? Now, I said earlier, uh, it may be that he was barely a heretic. When you read the story, there was a whole lot of political intrigue and imprisonment and running guys out of town and clubs and things along those lines. Um, and there was a fight taking place about whether or not Jesus, whether you could call Mary the God-bearer, Theotokos. And Asuras didn't like that because it makes it sound like that God the Son is being created. If Mary is the mother of God, well, you could end up in the Roman Catholic error of thinking that she is the mother of God, the mediatrix, who you have to talk to because she has some clout with her son because she's mom, and so she can go talk to Jesus to change things in your life. Not true, not true. Uh, Nestorius actually liked the idea of calling Mary Christotakos, the Christ-bearer. And the idea is, when Jesus became incarnate, what took place in Mary's womb? We know the Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary and, and granted her conception. Well, we're going to hear this get talked about in a little bit. But so he was, when he said that Mary is not the mother of God... Everybody got upset. Now, the understanding of Mary doesn't have the full Eastern Orthodox or Roman Catholic uh, mediatrix, mother of God in a divine sense almost, that she was the assumption of Mary and never died, and all those weird things that are taught that are not true hadn't developed yet, but they all really liked Mary. And they found her very important, and we honor and respect Mary as well, but they're on their way to getting to those strange doctrines of today. Nestorius didn't like that. I kind of respect him for it, but he made mistakes with it. In short, what he, what he ended up doing was he emphasized his emphasis on distinction between deity and humanity made it sound like that Jesus was a man with God in him, two persons, rather than the God-man, one person. Not like you and I, when we're born again, and the Holy Spirit indwells us, it, it almost sounds like that's what Nestorius is talking about. So in the same way that you relate to the Holy Spirit, that Jesus was just a really super man. But Scripture does not separate Jesus into two, and Jesus does not divide his work between the God part of him and sometimes the man part of him. He is one. So for example, Romans 5, 18 and 19. Here Paul is making a contrast between the first Adam in the garden and the last Adam, Jesus. He says in Romans 5, 18, therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, that's Adam, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men, for those who believe in Jesus. Verse 19, 
For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. And theologians latch onto the phrase, why does Paul keep talking about the one man? Because it's not the work of two men. It wasn't just a divine Jesus. The reason Jesus was sinless, I'm not going to go too far into this, was not just because he was divine, but because he was also the triumphant Adam in his humanity who did not cave into sin like the first Adam did. But Jesus is unified. He's the God-man, not man with God in him. So it's not different work by two men. Sometimes God the Son doing part of the work, holding hands with the Son of Man, but that it's redemption, Paul is arguing here, is one man's obedience. So that's, that's Nestorius. His language and his teaching and preaching and arguing made it sound like Jesus was two persons, and that's what led to maybe it's the ghost Jesus flew down and adopted him. Maybe Jesus didn't become divine until he was out of Mary's womb. All those manner of things. That means that there would be a moment when Jesus was actually not divine. And that opens up to the heresy of adoptionism and a bunch of different things. Any questions on Nestorius and the error of two persons? No questions or bad questions. Are you guys kind of are you guys tracking a little bit or is this like me in math class? Okay. All right. Okay, well, let's move south and meet two heretics down in Alexandria. So remember, these are the guys who emphasize the unity and divinity at the expense of humanity. So let's see what kind of heresies arise there. You've already heard some. We'll get a little bit more detail here. Notice how a lot of these heretics are bishops. Um, so it's not, it's not a guy who's leading a small group. It's not the, it's not, um, the, these are prominent uh, Christian men in their communities who for different reasons, a lot of politics, um, and also being good theologians, for the most part, get put into these positions of leadership. So to be a bishop is, is more like a Roman Catholic bishop. It's a leadership over multiple churches over an entire city. Uh, so Apollinarius He's not a small fish. So he's the bishop of Laodicea. What, what is, what's his heresy? Apollinarianism is Christ is human, but with a divine mind. What does this mean? So his error, Apollinarius, was to emphasize Jesus' divinity at the expense of his humanity and to only speak of certain parts of of Jesus's humanity. In other words, Jesus was not truly and fully human. For Apollinarius, in order to preserve Christ's deity, he was unwilling to grant that Christ has a human will or mind. Remember the noose and suke conversation above? So that this is where he is saying, nope, uh-uh. He's uh, for him, let's see, where am I? 
He was unwilling to grant that Christ has a human will and which for him could be nothing but sinful. So therefore Christ did not have a human rational soul. So one could say that Jesus was only two-thirds human. So look at his starting point. What, What is his premise? Premise A, the human intellect is the source of sin. Premise B, Jesus became human. Conclusion, Jesus could not have had a human intellect. So he had to be less divine. Apollinarius taught that the nous, the rational soul, was the source of all human weakness and sin, and therefore Jesus could not have a human mind. Jesus was, here's the big idea, Jesus was a divine mind in a human body. That's the exterior, interior, difference, weird thing. Well, how do they respond? Here is an orthodox response. This is from Gregory of Nazianzus. Here's how, this is what he wrote to teach against these errors. Only a Christ who all the elements of human nature could redeem, uh, only a Christ who had all the elements, excuse me, of human nature could redeem all of man. And if every phase of man's nature were not redeemed, redemption would not be a fact. What has not been assumed has not been healed. We'll come back to that quote. We'll actually look at uh, Fuller. But if every phase of man's nature were not redeemed, redemption could not be a fact. Jesus had to become all of like us to be able to save all of us. Because the whole human person, we are totally depraved. Our feelings, our thinking, uh, every part of the human person is fallen. And sinful. So for he goes, so we'll go on talking about this. For Jesus Christ to be full and appropriate mediator of the hostility between God and man, he himself had to be both fully God and fully man, the God man. Gregory also said, if only half of Adam fell, then that which Christ assumes, that means uh, takes on to himself in his incarnation. If half of Adam fell, then that which Christ put on saves maybe half also. But if the whole of his nature fell, it must be united to the whole nature of him that was begotten and so be saved as a whole. What's Gregory saying? In other words, if all of Adam was lost and ruined by the fall, then Christ, the second Adam, must put on all that Adam possessed in order to restore human nature and live the life that Adam failed to live. But if Christ has a soul and yet is without a mind, how is he a man? For man is not a mindless animal. This is him arguing against Apollinarius. So when this took place, even the guys in his own town began to realize, okay, this guy has gone too far. This is not right. So his radical errors, Apollinarius's, pushed or maybe pulled the Alexandrians away from the extreme fringe emphasis of divinity and unity of Christ. They, they still, that was still their bent, but less Apollinarian. And so it kind of gave them a guardrail that needed to back off of and say, all right, you know, Jesus is truly man. What does that mean? 
Uh, before we move on from this heretic, I, I want to give you a point of application. I think at different times, Christians can be functional Apollinarians. As many Christians wrestle against sin, we wrestle against sin and temptation daily, we can become functional Apollinarians in that we view Jesus not as an example to follow since Jesus was God. So I remember distinctly as a, as a, uh, as a young pastor, younger pastor, <laughs> relative statement, of talking with two guys, and they were arguing this very thing. They couldn't follow. Jesus was not an example of how to fight sin and temptation because he kept saying, Jesus was God. He's not an example to follow. And so, so I didn't know the word Apollinarianism back then, but that's what I was hearing right then, that he, he didn't think as he read his Bible in his mind he forgot the, de or the, excuse me, the humanity part of Jesus. So I think a, le a lesson here for us is, is, is that we need to recognize that Jesus is truly man, contrary to what's being said here. We don't want to functionally deny Jesus' humanity and imply that Jesus doesn't get it because he didn't face our sin and temptation. Jesus was truly man. So here's Hebrews 2.15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So I think a point of application is just to recognize Jesus is the very one the gospel tells us to run to precisely because he is exactly human as you and I are. The only difference, no sin. That's the only difference. He was in a fallen body. He had to learn and grow in his humanity. Uh, he experienced all manner of temptations. And the difference between him and us is that, well, he doesn't have a sin nature, but he was tempted to sin. It was a real temptation. And because it was a real temptation, he, unlike us, never gave in to it. And you know what it's like the longer you live that when you face a temptation, whatever that is, how unbelievably magnetic and powerful temptation can be and how easy it is to cave into it all our life. So when it says that Jesus suffered, part of his suffering was that he never gave in to the temptations to sin. It wasn't merely an illusion. He really was tempted. So that's why he is the one that we can go to uh, and, and he is able to sympathize, not because he's... Um, in his divine intellect, knows all things, which he absolutely does, and also in his humanity, experience what we experienced. So let's not be functional Apollinarians. Questions? Diane. So how did Jesus not have a sin nature when he was, when Mary... Gave birth to him. That's a really good question. That is one of the reasons the patriarchal structure of the Bible is so important. 
and male headship. Because it's Adam who fell. And yes, all of humanity fell in him. But with the incarnation, because it wasn't the union of Joseph and Mary, but the Lord, uh, in, a, in a similar way that the Lord took the clay in the Garden of Eden and made Adam, now he used the DNA. I don't know how the Immaculate Conception took place. But the Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary. And, and uh, so Jesus would have looked like Mary, shared some of her DNA, most likely speculating. Uh, but he did not have that. As the new Adam, he was a new creation and therefore hadn't fallen. So that's why when he's in the wilderness and tempted, that's why when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane and tempted, and his whole life is temptation, he experienced real temptation that he never, that Adam caved into right away. Jesus didn't. Um, yeah. That's maybe as close as I can get to not really understanding that. But the Bible tells me so. Yes, Carrie. I've heard it said that um, that the sin sin is somehow passed on through th through men. I mean, of course, w women are sinful. We're all mankind. But but that I I, I don't know. As far as um, that's what I was told. That's what I was taught. But the other thing is there. Um, there are things that in in the rest of human nature, say with DNA, that women can have and carry but can't pass on. And maybe we don't have the ca capacity to, to pass it on even though we're sinful. One of the things that we'll get into regarding... Uh, um, one of the things you hear me say is that we are sinners by nature, practice choice, and God's declaration. Um, now, sinners by God's declaration. The Bible has a strange way of thinking that's strange to us, but it's um, unlike our culture that loves youth and seems to despise age, the Bible's the opposite and loves age and honors the more aged you are. And the idea is that... Um, what your forefathers did, you did in them. So when Adam fell, because all of humanity was still in him, we fell with him. And the way God works is he's designed the world that um, what Adam did, we did in him. So we didn't eat the fruit, he did, but, but, but by status, that status is conferred to us. And when Adam fell, it changed human nature that we now became sinners by nature. It's what we want to do. So it's not just what God says we did in Adam, but it's also what we want to do, and it's actually what we really do in real time. So we're sinners by nature. It's what we are. Practice, it's what we want to do. Choice is what we want to do. And by God's declaration. Jesus was the new creation, the new Adam. And so that's why the centerpiece of the gospel is being transferred from the last Adam into the new Adam. We need to go from our old father, Adam, who fell, and be transferred into our new father, God the Father's son, Jesus. So it's a, it's a change of paternity 
but it kind of mixes it. It gets weird because Jesus isn't our Father. God the Father is our Father. But Trinity, but anyways. I hope that helps. Yes. Going back to the thought about, well, if Jesus were born through Mary, why wasn't he born with sin? I have to go back to Adam before the fall was sinless. And Jesus coming is like you often say, the second Adam. He's coming in the form Adam originally did, but he was able to conquer sin where Adam wasn't. Jesus was tempted, but didn't give in. So I, I don't think Jesus lost his humanity by saying he wasn't born like us with the original sin. I think he was God's gift to us as the second Adam. That is such a great point, because we think to be human is to be sinful. That's not, because Genesis 1 and 2 and the first half of 3 are in your Bible. To be human, our, our God's intention with us is to not have a sin nature. That's part of why glory is going to be so glorious, is we will be unable and unwilling to sin. We'll never want to, and if we wanted to, which we never will, we wouldn't be able to. Um, and so that's, that's why we think, well, Jesus had to be a sinner. He didn't. He had to be the true man, the sinless one. So that's, yeah, before the fall, very important detail. Excellent questions. Excellent comments. Uh, any, anything else about Nestorius, two persons, Apollinarius, uh, um, the part humanness one? Anita, did you have something? What? Well, okay, ask it, and then I might say, good question, I'm not going to answer it. Okay. Well, I was wondering if, if all, of, all of what has just most recently been discussed relates to Jesus being called the seed of the woman, because usually it's the seed is related to the man. Why, why is he called the seed of the woman? That's an excellent observation, because the woman bears the ovum, the egg, not the seed, the man does. Yeah, that's also part of the part of the theological speculation on okay Lord, why did you say that there in Genesis three fifteen? Yeah, really good observation. Let's talk about you tickies. Don't name your son after this guy. <laughs> All right, so Jesus is a new kind of being. So we've kind of looked at this a little bit more, but let's get into some more more details. Um, so this is the lead-up to getting to Chalcedon. An analogy of Eutyches' view is that Christ's humanity was like a drop of wine in the ocean of his deity. That's, that's what he taught. We'll come back to, well, what does that mean? Eutyches believed that the human nature and divine nature both assimilated in, in Christ resulting in one new type of nature, like a hybrid, a third kind of nature in which the categories of human and divine are blurred. The divine becomes human, the human becomes divine, all mixed together like yellow and blue make green. So this is, this is the exact opposite of Nestorius. Nestorius is two people, guard those natures, and then all kinds of heresies that Jesus becomes God at some point. Here's the opposite. Something new happened. 
Eutyches denied that Jesus shared the same substance or essence, homoousios, oh, there's that Trinitarian word we got a couple weeks ago, personhood. Eutyches denied that Jesus shared the same substance as us. Um, meaning that he wasn't a human like you and me. That, that's what that means. Okay, so here's some interesting history. I hope I edited this because I was dictating it. Now, there was a propaganda war from both sides trying to persuade distant bishops to come to their side. So Eutyches, he rallies his troops. The guys against him rally their troops, and they're having another theological fight. Eutyches went on to appeal to Leo the Great for refuge. At the same time, Discorus swayed the Emperor Theodorus II to support Eutyches as well. I mean, we're just jumping right into all the names. Apologize. And just when Discorus thought he had completed his scheme, Leo threw a wrench into his plan with a letter to Flavian, Bishop of Constantinople. So Leo confirmed the synod's decision. So what had happened is they actually got together a, call him a synod, a meeting, and they're trying to uh, excommunicate the orthodox guys, the right guys, and, and say what Eutyches is teaching is right, that Jesus is, a, is the color green. He's, he's a new third thing. So Leo confirmed the synod's decision and gave sophisticated reasonings for his condemnation of Eutyches' theology. The famous letter, which we're going to actually read parts of in a few minutes, is called Leo's Tome. Eutyches was exiled. He found refuge in Alexandria with Discorus, his buddy. The emperor called a council in a second council in Ephesus, note the year, 449. This is just before Chalcedon in 451. To resume peace, but it became one of the biggest scandals in history. Here's what happened. So Eutyches is, you're a bad guy, you're a heretic, get out of here. He goes and finds his buddy. They call their own council. So 135 bishops showed up, but Theodoret was not invited. Discorus arrived with an intimidating entourage of thuggish monks. Do you ever, do you ever picture that in your mind? An intimidating entourage of thuggish monks? Somebody make that a t-shirt, please. I'll wear it. I'll wear it, I'll wear it under one of my three Sunday shirts. Essentially silencing Flavian and his friends, right? Threat and intimidation. This guy, Flavian, had no chance to read Leo's tome. So this is Leo. He's the pope. He's in Rome, super far away. He writes a letter to have it read by his people at this, at this deal, at this meeting. One representative, however, spoke in favor of the two natures of Christ, but he was shouted down by many. Here's the, these are the thug monks. This is what they're saying. Let him be burnt. Let him be burnt alive. As he has cut Christ in two, so let him be cut in two. Let's pray this. That does not happen at our church membership meeting on Sunday evening. Because this, this whole fake council is trying to say there's only one nature, fused, color green, Jesus is a new creature. 
So the representatives of Pope Leo saw the writing on the wall, so they departed early to avoid being identified with the council. In the final decision, the council condemned a theology of two natures of Christ as heresy. What you and I confess and believe, this false council said, we're heretics. And excommunicated its advocates. Theodoret, Flavian, and Pope Leo all got excommunicated. Eutyches' theology of only one new nature of Christ was reaffirmed, and he was restored to his former position. Uh, Dioscorus succeeded in his scheme. With the backing of the emperor and a so-called ecumenical council in his pocket, he felt justified to send his aggressive monks to attack Flavian when he sought to convene another council to counteract the second council of Ephesus, which was a fake council. Flavian died as a result. They attacked him and killed him, leaving Anatolius, a new guy, a friend of Dioscorus, to become the new patriarch of Constantinople, meaning a Eutychian became the patriarch of Constantinople. It now seemed that the whole Eastern Church was subjected to the Eutychian doctrine of Christ, right? Fusion of humanity and divinity, Superman and less God, and a new color, the color green. And it now seemed that the entire Eastern Church would become Eutychian. But Leo of Rome would not go down without a fight. Horrified with the recent decisions and events, he famously dubbed the Second Council of Ephesus the Robber Synod. So you can actually look it up and read all the... There, there's, there's insane details about what these guys were doing. It's called the Robber Synod. And he appealed to Emperor Theodosius to reverse all decisions in the council and to arrest the murderers of Flavian. Not surprisingly, Theodosius the emperor refused all of Leo's demands. Leo then began the process of calling another ecumenical council to meet in the West without the emperor's approval. By this time, relations between the Eastern Church and Western Church were so distant in the Roman Empire that he knew he did not have to worry about any retaliation from the emperor. Remember, the emperor is in Constantinople. It's in Turkey, in the east. And so, so Leo's being pretty bold. But in the following year, 450, Leo's fight against the east became unnecessary because Theodosius, the emperor, died in a freak or providential accident, having been thrown off his horse. And that allowed then Leo to call the Council of Constantinople, um, or Chalcedon rather, excuse me, so we would get to the Chalcedon, Chalcedonian Creed. There's so much more. It was really hard not to put a whole lot more details into this of how crazy these guys are. And the political uh, shenanigans and manipulation and deceit and, and all of those things is, is pretty, pretty gross. And so you can see how even Eutyches, right, his thug monks, just sends out like an army to go out and, and um, you know, pious... Jesus-loving, Bible-reading, um, Orthodox people believing the truth are just getting beat up and killed and things along those lines. And with the intimidation tactics, it's almost like Islamic Jihad, just forced conversion to their theological position. So um, as we draw to a close in our time, 
I want to read to you uh, two pieces, two statements on page 72 and 73. This is a segment from Leo's Tome. This was the thing that was going to be read at the Robber Synod. He, they see the thug monks and they bail, so they never read this. But then this is what ends up getting read at the New Council. And then we're also going to read a longer letter from Gregory of Nazianzus. So here's Leo's Tome. Eutyches should not have spoken so emptily in his explanation of the word becoming flesh as if the Christ who was brought forth from the virgin's womb had the form of a man but did not really have a body derived from his mother's body. The Holy Spirit made the virgin fruitful but Christ's real body was derived from her body. When wisdom built for herself a house, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Dwelt in that flesh, which he took from a human being and made alive with the spirit of rational life, nous. Thus the qualities of each nature and essence, human and divine, were entirely preserved and came together to form one person. Majesty took upon itself humility. Strength took upon itself weakness. Eternity took upon itself mortality. To pay the debt into which we had fallen, a nature which cannot be harmed, divine, was united with a nature which can suffer, human. Thus the man, Christ Jesus, the one single mediator between God and humankind was able to die in his human nature, but unable to die in his divine nature. And so the conditions of our healing were fulfilled. In this way, the true God was born in the full and perfect nature of humanity, complete in his own qualities, complete in ours. By ours, I mean those qualities which the Creator formed in us at the beginning, which He took upon Himself in order to restore. For there was no trace in the Savior of those qualities which the deceiver introduced into our nature, and which the deceived human race allowed to come in. God entered into fellowship with human weakness, but He did not share our sins. He took upon Himself the form of a servant, without the stain of sin, exalting the human qualities, without diminishing the divine. So they were smart back then. And there's Leo, the Pope. This is, this is the year, so he, he wrote this in, when was the Robber's Synod? He wrote it before the Robber's Synod, so this is, he wrote this in 448 or 449. And you can see the way that they're arguing against Apollinarianism. The Jesus with a divine interior and human shell, less human. And he's arguing at Eutychianism that there's a third new type of creature who's a, uh, a mixture of divinity and humanity. And then he's arguing it's Nestorianism that there's two persons in Jesus. A any questions about Eutychianism or Leo's tome before I read this, this final um, statement from Greg? 
Okay, this is a long quote. It's really good. I have it broken up here for readability, but it's just one big statement. We've heard uh, the end of it actually a little bit ago, but here's a letter. It's letter 101. So, so listen, some of these statements you're going to hear here uh, might sound familiar, and, and you're going to see that this is coming from um, the creed we're going to read, and they have the Nicene Creed in their blood, and they're reading their Bible, and so you're going to start hearing some of these things come out. And you're going to, excuse me, you might notice that, that uh, Gregory is actually fighting against a couple different heresies when he says these things. Quote, the Apollinarians must not deceive others or themselves into thinking that, quote, the man of the Lord, close quote, as they call Christ, who's more truly called Lord and God, was without a human mind. For we do not separate his humanity from his divinity. We teach that he is one and the same person. Once he was not a man, but only God the Son, existing before all ages. And he was not connected with a body or anything physical, but now he has become man too, taking humanity upon himself for our salvation. He suffers in the flesh, but is incapable of suffering in his divinity. He is limited in the body, but unlimited in the spirit. He is on the earth and at the same time in heaven. He belongs to the visible world and also to the eternal order of being. He can be understood and yet is incomprehensible. He combined these elements in himself so that the whole of our human nature which had fallen into sin, might be recreated afresh by one who was completely human and at the same time, God. He goes on, Anyone who does not admit that Holy Mary is the birth giver of God is out of touch with the deity. Equally far from God is anyone who says that Christ passed through the virgin like water through a channel without being formed in her in a way that was both human and divine. He was formed in Mary in a divine way because it was without the agency of man. Just pause. When it says that he was formed in a divine way, he's speaking of the, of the Holy Spirit granting conception not that deity is being formed. So don't misunderstand his clear words. And he was formed in Mary in a human way because it was according to the normal process of growth in the womb. Again, a person comes under condemnation if he says that a human being was first of all formed in Mary and then later the divine nature was added to it. This would mean that the person conceived in Mary's womb was not God. Or if anyone introduces two sons, one derived from God the Father and the other son from Jesus' mother, not being one in the same son, then he fails to share in the adoption of sons, which is promised to those who believe rightly. 
these are, there are indeed two natures in Christ, the divine and the human, the human including soul and body, and they are not two sons or two gods or two human beings, although Paul does speak of the inner and outer elements of our human nature as the inner man and outer man. To sum up, Gregory continues, the Savior is made out of two separate components. I don't know why they translated the word component there. I don't know what the original language is behind the word component. Don't stumble over the word component, even though it's weird to say that. To sum up, he says, the Savior is made out of two components. The invisible component is not the same as the visible nor the eternal component, the same as the time-born. But there are not two separate beings, definitely not. Both components are blended into one. The divinity takes on humanity, or the humanity receives divinity, or however you wish to put it. Have you placed your hope in a Jesus who was a human being without a human mind? Then you yourself are truly mindless. gentle and kind of preaching, and do not deserve a complete salvation. We've heard this a couple times. For what has not been taken up has not been healed. Our nature in its different aspects has been saved only to the degree that has been united with God. If it was half of Adam that fell, then half of our nature might be taken up and saved. But it was all of Adam that fell. And so all of our nature is united with all of him who was begotten of the Father and thus gains a complete salvation. Then let the Apollinarians not envy this complete salvation nor equip the Savior with just bones and muscles, which would only be the outward appearance of humanity. And on he goes. So you can see here in this language them... The two guardrails. Jesus isn't two persons. But Jesus is not a new color. Green. Jesus is not uh, a, a, shell, a human shell with a divine nature. So they're getting to this point to tell us that he is truly, completely God. And he is truly, completely human. To be our savior and be like us. And he is one person without sin. That's, that's what this is building up to. I want to read this, this last part on page 73. Uh, I'm going to close this in prayer because we're five minutes over. And then stay and take all the questions you have. So this is the lead up to the Chalcedonian Creed. We're going to learn when we get into it next week. That the Creed accepted remember the southern Alexandrian view that Christ was one single person. And implied, if it did not explicitly state, that this person was the only begotten God, the Logos. The creed will also affirm the Alexandrian belief that the divine son underwent all the human experiences of Jesus so that it was proper to say that God the son was born of Mary. The Virgin Mary was the birth giver of God. That the Bible really was telling the truth when the Holy Spirit granted conception um, 
to Mary in her womb, and it really was God the Son incarnate, being made incarnate in her womb, not something that happened after he was born. So that's for the southern Alexandrian guys. But for the northern guys, the creed also accepted the the Antiochian view that Christ's human and divine natures each kept their own distinctive qualities and properties. Christ's humanity was as real and complete as yours. It was not swallowed up or absorbed by his deity. Christ had two complete, distinct natures, fully and truly human, fully and truly divine. And finally, the creed made it clear that phusis and hypostasis, we'll get into these later, so, but just were no longer to be understood in the same sense in the doctrine of the incarnation. Phusis meant nature, not person. Hypostasis meant person, not nature. In this way, the unclear language which had caused the whole debate between the two groups was decisively settled. So here is where orthodoxy comes in. We say that Christ is one hypostasis and two Fusis. He is one person in two natures. Not in two. This is called the hypostatic union. It's called the hypostatic union because it's using the Greek words they used. So now think about this. The Trinity is one God in three persons. And Jesus is One person with two natures. Don't get that confused. When we read this, this is always coming from our understanding of what the Bible says and synthesizes together. What does it mean that he's the Christ? The Bible tells us that he's Emmanuel, God with us. That he is Jesus He is Yahweh who will save their people from their sins. He is the everlasting father that we hear in Isaiah 9, that strange passage that we read at Christmas. What does that mean? And does God change? And so you're beginning to think about all these different verses that we read, and you begin to put them like stars in the sky, and they create a constellation that teaches us Jesus is one person with two natures. So as you... If you just go to the next page, I want to show you what you have. I encourage you to read it. Um, You can see here on pages 74 and 75, in the left column, we have the Apostles' Creed. In the middle column, we have the Nicene Creed from 381. And then what I'm trying to show you here is, as they're thinking about the Chalcedonian definition, they are building on the, this is a footnote to the Nicene Creed. They're not trying to add something new. They're adding a footnote to explain. So that's when you look here on page 74, the entire Chalcedonian definition is in this box next to the category of the incarnation of virgin birth. That's just how, a way to visually see it and how it fits together. So Lord willing, when we, when we get together next time, we're going to jump right into talking about all the beautiful words that are right here in the Nicene Creed, which, let me just read. I can't talk about it so much and then not actually read it. Following the saintly fathers, we all with one voice teach the confession 
of one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in divinity and perfect in humanity, the same truly God and truly man, of a rational soul and a body, consubstantial with the Father as regards to his divinity, same substance as the Father, fully divine, and the same consubstantial with us as regards his humanity. He's the same essence as, as us. Like us in all respects except for sin. Begotten before the ages from the Father as regards his divinity. And in the last days, the same for us and for our salvation from Mary, the virgin God-bearer, as regards his humanity. One and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, acknowledged in two natures which undergo no confusion, no change, no division, no separation, at no point was the difference between the natures taken away through the union, but rather the property of both natures is preserved and comes together into a single person and a single subsistent being. He is not parted or divided into two persons, but is one and the same, only begotten, Son, God, Word, Lord Jesus Christ, just as the prophets taught from the beginning about him, and as the Lord Jesus Christ himself instructed us, and as the creed of the fathers, Nicene, handed it down to us. End of definition. Lord, we thank you. Uh, we, we confess, Lord, that we are treading in deep waters. Um, but this, this is who you are, Lord. Your word tells us that you're triune. And your, Lord, your word tells us that God the Son became incarnate. And Lord, we want to understand that. We, we want to understand that because we want to marvel at how glorious and magnificent you are and what our salvation means. So Lord, thank you for our great-grandparents in the faith who fought, literally given their lives, to preserve what your Bible teaches, to think well and deeply about it, and to give us these Beautiful, poetic, complex, amazing statements to help us understand you better. Lord, we thank you for that and pray this in Christ's name. Amen.